Welcome to the Hills. Whether you're in person at one of our campuses or watching literally around the world, it's rather chilly in Fort Worth, Texas today. I hope wherever you are, this message will warm your heart. Uh, We started last week a series called Keep Calm, a series on anxiety. God put this idea on my heart over a year ago. Perhaps he thought it might be relevant this season. And because of the events of last week, I think I would betray my calling as a pastor if I didn't take just a moment and share a few thoughts. Now, be clear. I can't speak for the motives or intents of all the people that were in Washington last Wednesday. I can only speak to what I saw. And what I saw were people breaking the law, entering the Capitol unlawfully, threatening duly elected officials doing their constitutional duty. I never in my lifetime thought I would see that in this country. And my heart was broken. I know yours was too. And we join together to grieve the loss of life and to pray for those who were injured. I believe it's our duty as Americans to steward our freedoms well, to embrace our responsibilities as citizens of a democracy, and to model for other countries what governance based on the will of the people should look like. In fact, I would contend one of our greatest gifts to the rest of the world is the way that we demonstrate how to peaceably transfer power. I appreciated the words of former President Bush. In the United States of America, it is the fundamental responsibility of every patriotic citizen to support the rule of law. To those who are disappointed in the results of the election, our country is more important than the politics of the moment. Let the officials elected by the people fulfill their duties and represent our voices in peace and safety. And every citizen, regardless of party affiliation, should be able to affirm those remarks. But I come to you today more as a pastor than even a citizen. And my greatest concern has nothing to do with political views, but with my Christian convictions. What grieved me most last Wednesday was to witness the name of the Lord taken in vain. I saw people... Looting, unlawfully entering, desecrating sacred things, threatening with violence fellow citizens. And some of them carried banners and signs that said, Jesus. They blasphemed his name. Let me be clear. I do not know the Jesus those rioters were claiming. I do not find that Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. And I am thankful that Christian leaders across the nation and around the globe have been quick to denounce the way his name was dishonored. If you struggle to embrace Jesus because of the way his name has been used, and let me add in the last two years, I've had so many conversations, particularly with younger people, Considering leaving the faith because of the way they see the name of Jesus used. Let me please ask you to reconsider the Jesus of the scriptures. He taught us to love truth. And to refuse to entertain and 
spread bogus and unsubstantiated versions of it. He modeled and taught the virtue of honor, even for those with whom we disagree. And most of all, Jesus made it clear that his way was not the way of power and violence, but the way of sacrificial love. And he proved it by going to a cross. Now more than ever, the world needs to see that the people who wear his name actually practice what he taught and lived. And one way we're going to do that right now is to pray for our country and for our leaders and for our witness. So would you bow and join me, please? And so, God, our, our hearts join with your heart in being broken over what we witnessed last week. And yet, even as we say that, God, we're thankful. We're thankful we live in a country that has the freedoms that we have, and we're thankful that the intentions of the lawbreakers were not met. We're thankful that men and women on both sides of the aisle were quick to condemn such behavior. I'm thankful for the brave men and women who wear a badge and who put themselves in harm's way to protect the innocent. I'm thankful that the overwhelming majority of my fellow citizens, regardless of party, do not want to live in a country run like that. And God, right now we obey the clear teaching of Scripture that we are to pray for our leaders. So we do. We pray for President-elect Biden and his administration. We pray for all the senators and congresspeople, for all the governors, all the way down to our local councilmen and women. For all that are involved in the sphere of government, God, we pray this, that you would give them a spirit of wisdom, that you would, you would give them a huge desire to walk in integrity, and a desire to do what is best for all the people, and not just for some. And God, we pray for your church. We have not always honored the name of Jesus. We repent. Help us do better. Help us not just to wear his name, but to actually do what he said. And we thank you now, God, that your throne never topples, that your kingdom will come. And we declare that our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. We hope he comes soon and pray in his name. Amen. So, we're going to talk about anxiety. Like I said, maybe it's relevant right now. Last week, I opened the series, and I got to tell you, I got an overwhelming amount of encouraging feedback. Although one brother did say to me, Rick, that lesson blessed me so much, I can't wait till the pandemic is over so I can give you a big hug. And it dawned on me, when the pandemic is over, people are going to start trying to hug me again. And I got anxious. <laughs> so let me just say to you, when I preach about leaving the prison of a perpetually anxious life, I do so as a fellow pilgrim. I'm reminded of the story of the older woman who was trying to cross a busy street and she was petrified. And, and suddenly a young man stood beside her, put his hand on her elbow and said, care to cross the street with me. And she was eager to accept the invitation, so they took off. But you would not believe how they zigged and they zagged. They almost got hit six times by cars. When they finally got to the other side, she said with frustration, you call that help, you walk like you're blind. He said, I am blind. That's why I said, care to cross the street with me. So here's what I want you to hear. I struggle with anxiety just like you do because I'm human. And also, 
Because I'm an American. That's right. The USA gets the gold medal in the most anxious nation on earth competition. Study after study says there's no nation on earth more, de- more frustrated by, more overwhelmed by anxiety than the American people. And, and here we are, the wealthiest nation on earth, excellent health care, a great economy, excellent education system, and we are freaking out. Look at this picture I saw recently. Here's a Mercedes Benz, and it has the license plate, Anxiety. Did you know that they do studies that show that when immigrants from developing nations come to America, their standard of living goes up and so does their anxiety. That moving to this country makes you more anxious. Why is that? What are factors contributing to the anxiety epidemic in our nation? I've been doing a lot of reading over the last year and I'm just going to give you four. I'm sure there are more, but I think these four are very real and legitimate. Number one, is a lack of social connection. Think about your great-grandparents. They probably lived most of their lives close to where they were born. They knew everyone in town, everyone at school. They went to church. They had people in their lives. Today, we have thousands of friends on our smartphones and not five people we could call at two in the morning. Another issue, I think, is the speed at which we get bad news today. Again, think of your great-grandparents. If there was a tsunami or a political uprising, it might be weeks before they heard about it. But today, every day, there is a natural disaster. There is a terrorist attack. There is a scandal. There is a shooting. And we hear about it in seconds. And many are suggesting we're simply receiving bad news at a speed and a volume that is outpacing our capacity to process it. Another very real factor is that We particularly in this country are an entitled people. We have no tolerance for pain and suffering. Most nations in the world know that life is hard and can accept it. We can't. And so when we hurt, we want to fire somebody or blame somebody or sue somebody. And then, I cannot overemphasize the impact that social media platforms have had on us. Every study of the rate of suicide, of mental health, will take you back to about 2007 to 2010 and what social media platforms have done to us. I don't usually do this, but I would really recommend you watch a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. As you hear the people that created the platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram talk about what they now realize they've created how they won't let their own children use these platforms. Because here's what they know that a lot of us don't know. You think you're the customer. You are not the customer. You are the product. They sell us. They exist to make money, not to create goodwill. They sell your attention to advertisers. And here's what they know. To keep you engaged, they need to keep you enraged. The more anxious and fearful you are, the more time you spend on those platforms. So they study you. They know everything you click on, everything you read, and they feed you a steady diet so they keep you in your echo chamber and keep you upset. They know 
you are six times more likely to share a post that is not true than that is true. Because truth is boring, but falsehood is anxious. And please understand, when they make you anxious, they make money. Right now, as never before, our nation needs the witness of a community that knows how to keep calm. It is an option. And I would contend as a follower of Jesus, it is an obligation. So we're using a text from the book of Philippians, these four weeks, and we're going to read it again. And I want you to know, when I say the word obligation, I do so because I want you to notice how many times Paul uses words that are commands. Let's start with the very first word in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Recently, I was playing a local golf course, and I took a picture of this sign on a hole by a river that sometimes floods. And the sign said, when flooded, turn around, don't drown. Now, you might think, why do you need a sign like that? Why would anybody think a flood is normal? And yet what we do in our culture is we live constantly trying to keep our head afloat in this sea of anxiety and we think it's normal. Paul says you don't have to live that way. And remember, he's writing from prison. And he insists that we have spiritual resources that we can use to keep calm. But this is what you've got to know. Keeping calm is a practice. And here's what I mean by that. In the culture that we live in, you are not going to drift in the direction of a less anxious life. You're going to have to pursue it. We're going to have to understand that when anxiety speaks, we get to talk back. And so, last week I gave you an acrostic from this passage in Philippians. We're going to learn four principles of things we can practice to live less anxious lives. And last week, we talked about the most important. You've got to come to Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you missed that lesson, to please go back and listen. And then we're going to see today, you've got to ask God for what you need. Next week, we're going to realize that we can learn to be content. And finally, we've got to take thoughts captive. We've got to mend our mind. You see, much of our anxiety is learned, and it can be unlearned. And the first thing we can learn is that instead of wringing our hands, we can bend our knees. You've all driven a new car, and a light starts to flash on your dash, and you get out the owner's manual, and it says, if that light starts to flash, get to the dealership immediately. Persistent anxiety is a red light in your internal dashboard saying, take it to 
the maker. Uh, let's go back and look again at verse 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which will exceed anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. He's saying that prayer defeats despair. You know who knew this better than anyone? Jesus. You find these verses sprinkled all through the Gospels of how much he prayed. Like in Luke 5, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I said last week that anxiety is contagious. You all know that person that can just walk in the room and everybody gets more tense. But you also know that calm is contagious. There's that person that can walk into a room and everyone just kind of relaxes. Jesus was the second guy. Jesus could just help everyone be less anxious. Because he lived his life from a place of rest. Because of his intentionally frequent practice of spending time with God. He kept calm because he kept praying. And we can too. And we should. So what I want to do is just give you three suggestions to equip your own prayer life to better combat the epidemic of anxiety. And here's the first thing. Just cast your anxiety on God. Anxiety results when we carry stuff that we weren't meant to carry. Now think about it. If Jesus would carry your cross, he's willing to carry your stuff. So let him. Here's how Peter put it. He said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, what does it mean to cast? Well, it means, it means to intentionally relocate something on purpose to put something somewhere else. And if you don't chunk your worries, your worries are going to choke you. Jesus, in the well-known parable of the sower, says, Now some seed, which represents the Word of God, falls on thorns. He says, The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's Word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life. The lure of wealth, the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. Does that maybe describe you last year? Could you say last year, I got spiritually healthier? Or would you say, you know, I, I did it. I did not see the development of the fruit of the Spirit in my life last year. Worry chokes spiritual health. Now remember, the cultural narrative says it is normative to just live anxiously trying to keep your head above water. The Bible says, no, that's not normative. It doesn't have to be that way. You can relocate your anxiety. But because of the culture we live in, what happens is we, we release our worry and then we retrieve it. So David McKenzie is a Christian author who tells a story of trying to teach his children the principle of casting your anxiety on God. So he, he taped a paper sack to the top of the door in the kitchen. And he had all the kids get at the table and write out things they were worried about. And they took each scrap of paper and they got on a stool and each one 
got to put their worry in the sack as a sign we're giving this to God. Here's the deal, David said to his kids. Now, if you start to worry again, you've got to get on the stool and you've got to go get that worry back and take it back from God. Great plan. The problem was he's the one who had to get on the stool more than anybody else in the family and go get his worries back. I understand that. What I'm saying is that we've all had times in our life where we've just had it. And the Bible says, let God have it. No problem is too big for his power. No concern is too small for his mercy. If it's on your mind, it is on God's heart. So talk to him about it. Cast all your anxiety on him. And and when you do, this is real important, request what you really want. I said that on purpose the way I said it. This is not being selfish. This is being obedient. Now think about it. If all the cliches and all the church jargon and Christian lingo, all the bless the sick and God guarding the wrecks were taken out of your prayers, how much would be left? Imagine... A small child coming to his parents and he's crying. What's the matter? What's the matter? No, no. Calm down. Use your words. Mommy and daddy can't help till we know what the problem is. Imagine going to a doctor. Why are you here? I don't feel good. Well, tell me. Well, I can't put it into words. How's he supposed to help you? Paul says, with prayers and petitions and requests. And that word request means specific needs. Let me give you an illustration. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus. Jesus is walking by. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus called him over. Notice, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus didn't say, well, bless the world. God garden direct. He said, here's what I want you to do for me. I want to see. Now, when you are anxious, And you're trying to take it to the Lord. I want you to imagine Jesus asking you this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now some of you are ahead of me. Wait a second, Pastor. The Bible says God knows what I need before I even ask. So why do I need to get specific with God? The specificity is not for God's benefit. It is for yours. Wonderful things happen when we get specific in prayer with God. For one thing, when we specify our requests, we know when the answer comes and where the answer comes from. So God gets the glory. But another thing, and this is real big and important. When we get specific in our prayers, it helps us get to the root of why we are really anxious. Because often the anxiety that we're confessing is the surface issue, but beneath it is something that's the real problem. Now let me give a personal example. Some years ago when I was a young preacher, I got invited to a very prestigious event to speak before thousands of people, maybe the largest audience of my life. And I was anxious. And so I prayed about that. And if you would have asked me, I would have said, well, I'm praying that my message will honor God and be well received. That sounds very holy, doesn't it? 
But as I prayed, the Spirit guided me to understand that's not really what was making me anxious. I had a good word to bring. What was really making me anxious is that I wanted to be well thought of by all the people out there. I wanted them to think I was ready for this moment. And then the Spirit took me deeper and revealed my real struggle is that I seek validation from people instead of hearing the well done of God. You see, and it's when the Spirit took me specifically to that root that I was able to escape the prison of anxiety. See, prayers are two-way communication. And when you get specific with God, the Holy Spirit will return the favor. And He will often reveal to us Scripture or words that will bless us in a powerful way. That's another benefit of getting specific requests to the Lord. Uh, recently, I was praying for someone in my family who's very sick. I took about an hour and I just read through the gospel's healing stories of Jesus, praying for my loved one. And in that moment, a scripture jumped off the page to me. I've read it a hundred times, but this day, God used it in a powerful, specific way to speak to me and to bring comfort to me. I realize God is more eager to respond than we often are to request. Cast your anxiety on God and be very specific and ask for what you want. And then trust that you matter to God. Cast all your anxieties on Him for He cares for you. If it matters to you, it matters to God. Because you matter to God. I think this is one of Jesus' big points in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's got a long section on worry. And in that sermon, Jesus says, I get why pagans worry. I get it. I mean, either they have capricious gods or they live in a mechanistic universe where there is no God. It makes total sense. They live totally anxious lives. Why do you worry like pagans? Have you forgotten who your God is? And Jesus says, look at the creation, the way he takes care of lilies, the way he takes care of sparrows. Is a sparrow made in the image of God? Is a sparrow a co-heir with Christ? Jesus says, creation itself preaches God is going to give you everything you need to live obediently in his kingdom. And if creation preaches, the cross preaches even louder. Paul said in Romans 8, since he did not Spare, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now, Paul is not saying, don't worry, God's going to give you everything you want. Remember, Paul's writing from prison. What he is saying is God's going to give us everything we need to escape the prison of perpetual anxiety. God is going to give us everything we need to be rested souls who are living out the mission of Jesus wherever we are. And what he's going to give us most of all is his very own peace. Not peace from God, the peace of God. God's very peace downloaded into our 
souls. I cannot explain it, but I have experienced it. I told you earlier, I'm like you. I am a pilgrim on the journey to escape anxiety. But I want you to know, all glory to God, I'm a pilgrim making progress. I'm a pilgrim who does not wrestle nearly as much with anxiety as I did years ago. And I'm not the only one. So I want you now to watch a a quick video of Kevin Doherty, his son Caleb, and his brother-in-law Steve Money as they share what God taught them about experiencing his peace. Please watch. I've talked with a lot of my buddies um, who have had parents uh, get stints, and they didn't think much of it. So uh, I wasn't worried at all, to be honest. My brother-in-law was supposed to have an easy stent surgery and a very high probability of success should go fine. Well, I get this frantic call that the surgery went bad and that one of the uh, arteries uh, burst. And I didn't know how to react. Um, I thought my dad was dead right there. And I remember my mom coming up there and grabbed me by the side and just praying with me. And we were both um, in tears, just we didn't know how to react. So I got in my car and I immediately started talking to the Lord on the way over here and said, okay, Lord, what's going on? And as I was praying, I just felt the peace of the Lord come over me. And I felt like the Lord speaking into my heart through the Holy Spirit was, I'm gonna raise Kevin up, he's gonna be fine. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to drive 100 miles an hour like you're doing now to get there. The night before I was just eating dinner with my dad and now he's being resuscitated and we don't know if he's gonna live. Um, And I stand there with my mom and I remember this peace coming over me and I, I don't know how to explain it at all. God was just, I don't know, just giving me this peace that I, I couldn't understand. And I looked at my mom and I said, Dad's gonna be okay. And she looked back at me and no longer than two minutes, the doctor said in, came in and said, your dad has a pulse. And I was unconscious for two and a half weeks. I was on life support. I was in a medically induced coma. I just remember waking up in Grapevine two and a half weeks later and uh, realizing that something must have gone wrong. Obviously, it was a road to recovery. Um, His body had been pushed to the limits. When he first got home, we had a little bit of a a parade for him um, and just to let him know that everyone who had been praying for him um, was there. I think that without the prayers, he probably wouldn't be here, to be honest. The nurses came down um, two days after he went to the ICU um, and, and told my mom that your husband shouldn't be here. So one of the most powerful lessons that I learned going through all of this was leaning into Jesus and the power of prayer to address the anxiety and the stressors that we all struggle with in life. And, and I realized that, um, that I needed to hearken back to where I was when I was laying in that bed in the hospital. And, and I had to rely on God and others because I could not rely on myself. Anxiety and all the things that go with it, fear, all these things. I fought that demon my whole life. The key is to take your focus straight back to Jesus 
keep your focus on Jesus and what his word says. So it's only God. It's only God that, that my dad's here right now and, and, and prayers from, from everyone. I um, I'm not trying to pretend that escaping the bondage of anxiety is easy. I'm insisting it's possible. God has given us resources, but we've got to take advantage of them. Keeping calm is a practice, but here's something else. Keeping peace is a promise. Obey God, and He promises to give you a peace that will keep your heart and your mind. It's not a peace that's tied to understanding. It's not a peace that's tied to getting all your questions answered. It's not even a peace that is dependent on getting everything you prayed for. It's a peace that is unexplainable, but undeniable. God's ability to relieve anxiety can only be explained this way. It comes from God. It comes from God. Look at verse 7 from the message. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So one more quick story. Lieutenant Colonel Gary Morse was in the Army Reserves as a physician. He was given the assignment of taking a prisoner with a severe abdominal infection to Baghdad to a better hospital. It meant putting on 50 pounds of body armor, getting in a Humvee with a gunner above, looking for snipers, going down a road with potential landmines. And he was filled with anxiety, nervous, even angry, wondering, this would be scary to do for an American. Why am I having to do this for an enemy? And then he remembered that his son-in-law had sent him some worship music. He hit shuffle, and the first song that came up was Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel his power and his grace. Something happened. He began to weep. He, he began to pour out to God everything he was scared about. And he said a peace began to fill his heart. And not just a peace, but a love. A love even for the prisoner he was transporting. And when they got to Baghdad, the road had not changed. The threat had not diminished. But he was a different man. God, once again, had kept his promise. There's Paul in prison. He's got this soldier guarding him. But, but Paul had something else guarding him peace of God and that's what I want for you it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing that happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life so let's pray about it bow your heads please I'll finish the prayer but you're going to start here's what I want you to do I want you to be specific and just pick one thing in your life right now, not ten. Just pick one thing right now that you're anxious about and give it to God. 
now I'm going to ask you to be very bold. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal if there's a worry beneath the worry that is the root of the problem. Now, God, I call on your faithfulness to do what you promise. And for all, wherever they are, who have sincerely and obediently followed your word, would you please now give them an overwhelming peace? Do a miracle in someone's heart right now, God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.